This morning we are going to be turning to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 18, but I do want to read the entirety of chapter 3 again, because I do believe it provides context for the verses that we're going to be looking at. Second Peter, chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1, Peter writes these words. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that or by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things... Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we do in 
awesome wonder. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. We see all of creation and recognize, as the scriptures say, that it is proclaiming the glory of your name and the excellency of your fame. And we just praise you this morning and thank you that though our hearts at times are weary, though our hearts at times grieve and sorrow, though our our hearts are burdened with cares, even as we think of some in our midst who are struggling with health challenges and others maybe who have silent cries in their hearts, working through spiritual struggles and wondering if you are hearing. Nevertheless, you display your glory in such a way that is unmistakably clear. And more importantly, Lord, you have revealed to us in your word the truths that feed our souls. So I pray that this morning you would cause that our hearts would be encouraged by the truths of your word and that we, through the work of your spirit, might be steadfast in our faith, even as Peter said, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So, this text of scripture here is clearly one of the more encouraging ones for some of us to consider as we look at the world around us and we realize that the challenges we face in life ultimately are going to come to a head when Peter says this world is going to end up getting destroyed and there's going to be challenges um, that we face between now and then. But ultimately, there are promises that we look forward to. One of the things that we can um, cling to is the promise that Jesus gave. Remember when he told his disciples about the fact that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And that was kind of a formula that, that a, a man who was espoused to a woman would say, I'm going, I'm engaged to you. We will be married. I pr- promise you, I assure you, we will be married. And I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place. And when I'm done preparing that place, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you so that where I am, you may be also. It was kind of a Jewish way of saying, I'm making this pledge to you that I will come back. And the woman would prepare herself and be excited for the day when that promise would be fulfilled. Here, Peter is saying the same thing. Here are promises that we have that we know and we can, we can, we can know with certainty and be assured of completely. They are true and God will keep his promise. Blessings that we know as Christians that God cannot lie and what he says is true. But what do we do with the people who try to shake us and shake our faith? That's the problem. All things being equal, it's not like we live in a world where we have the promises of God and there will never once be an assault on our faith. Not even once. No. The world is filled with philosophies and people and cultures that are doing things that not only are antagonistic towards the Christian religion, but of course are scoffing the truth claims within it. Peter says as much. And here he is, not 50 years after Jesus has left the earth, and there already are people who are scoffing and making fun of these Christians. Because think about it. Here's the disciples. They're with Jesus. After the resurrection, they've been with him. They've seen him. 
There have been people in multiple occasions where they saw him in large groups. So unless people want to suggest that there was this huge hallucination, the reality is, is there's plenty of witnesses who could verify that Jesus was risen from the dead. They come up here and Jesus gives them his final command, go and make disciples starting here in Jerusalem and all to the uttermost parts of the earth, spread it far and wide, and I'm going to come back. And then he's caught up in a cloud and he goes away. And all the disciples, and I'm sure we would be the exact same thing, just staring up at what did I just see? I saw a man, the son of God, caught up in a cloud going to heaven. We've seen nothing like this. And then there are two angels, messengers from God, who look at them and they say, what are you staring at? Go do it. Go do what he told you to do. And be assured of this promise, that he will come back the same way you saw him leave. Peter heard that. And then he goes. And he starts preaching. You read the book of Acts. He's proclaiming the gospel message, and he's doing so with abandon. He doesn't care whether or not people are going to look at him and suggest things that are, are perhaps going to assault his faith in the promise that Jesus had made through those messengers or angels. He's going, he's proclaiming. He's not doing it perfectly. Paul has to go and confront him over something, as you read in the book of Galatians. So he's not going to be perfect at all, but here's one thing he knew. There's a promise I'm clinging to, and I cannot wait to see the fulfillment of it. But even in his day, there were people who were already saying, you kind of are, you're whacked out, man. You're kind of believing a lie, let me tell you. Because he says this in verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. Now, Peter, James, John, Paul, all those disciples, when did they think the last days were? They thought they were living in them. So it's not like Peter's writing these words down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's saying, now I realize this is probably still going to be 2,000 years from now. There's going to be scoffers who are going to come from, from, from 2,000 years from now and they're going to be saying, where's the promise of his coming? I guarantee you Peter believed with all of his heart that Jesus was going to come. Even though Jesus had already signified at the end of John what death he was going to end up dying. But Peter thought, this is, going to be the, this is going to be my lifetime. These are the last days, and scoffers will come. And what were they going to be saying? Verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of the creation. You can look from the beginning of creation all the way till now, and there's just this unhindered, uninterrupted, steady diet, flat line of history where nothing extraordinary has happened. So where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? And any of us who can be easily persuaded can hear those questions and begin to ask the same thing. When are you coming? Am I believing in vain? It's been 2,000 years. And if it's been 2,000 years removed, what's to say that I'm even believing the right thing? 2,000 years, I mean, it's, it's, it could be like a long game of telephone that's been happening. 2,000 years, what happened 2,000 years ago might be completely different from what 
I think it happened 2,000 years ago. And the assaults that happen are going to be assaults that try to make us question whether or not the promise of God is true. But is that not, has that not been the MO of Satan ever since the beginning of time? Has he not been doing everything to question our, cause us to question our faith in the promises of God ever since the Garden of Eden? What Peter is suggesting here in, in, first, in Second Peter chapter 3 is that scoffers are going to come. There's no question about it. And they're going to cause you to question your faith. They're going to cause you to question the faith. Is Christianity right? Are we following a fable? Are the stories that, that we hear about Jesus where he was walking on water, taking five loaves of bread and two fish and, and causing the blind to see and the lame to walk and, and the dumb to speak and even raising people from the dead? We've never seen that. Have any of you seen that? I haven't. Since the beginning of time, from our perspective, since the beginning of my life, I haven't seen those kinds of things happen. So maybe when people ask the question, where's the promise of his coming? Maybe I should be wondering that too. And Peter says, listen to me carefully. Do not let people shake your faith in Christ. You must be steadfast. Or in the words of Paul, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Peter concludes his second epistle to people who perhaps were hearing from the scoffers, who were saying, this whole Christianity thing, this couldn't possibly be real. Where is he? He made a promise to you. I don't see him fulfilling it. Where is he? We know now, 2,000 years later, science is really the ultimate source of truth. The science says, the science says that there's no random dude coming in the clouds, coming down to come get you. The scoffers will scoff. But Peter says, you remain steadfast in your faith. You remain steadfast in your faith. And he doesn't just tell us, do it. He gives us four ways Four ways that we must be steadfast in our faith. And here are his exhortations to us. The Holy Spirit, inspiring the writing of the Apostle Peter, gives us four ways to be steadfast. And here's the first one. Be diligent in your walk. Be diligent in your walk. In verse 14, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. What things? The promises being fulfilled from God. Jesus will come. He will come. Peter says, we're looking for the day when we will see Jesus face to face. When we will see him coming in the clouds, coming back for us. Seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him. It says in the King James, your translation may say, be found by him in peace. You want to be found by Jesus. Sometimes when, when it gets a little chaotic in our house, because Benjamin and Daniel love to just be very active, and somehow the, the activeness that they enjoy is particularly the more destructive things, we will encourage them, and by encourage them I mean say, Benjamin and Daniel, go into the basement and go play. We will send them down into the basement. But there are sometimes warnings that are given, Right? 
when you go down to the basement, don't just go down there and just start throwing toys out. I, will, I tell you, I will not understand to my dying day why little kids just want to take a bucket of stuff, dump it, run and go get another bucket, dump it, and they don't play with any of it. I don't get it. So I tell them, in fact, this was, uh, I can't think it must have been two weeks ago, I brought them down to the basement after Laura and I and the boys had spent, I don't know how long it must have been, trying to clean up. Like, it, it looked like a tornado had hit. We cleaned everything up, had everything, and I said, all right, here's a new rule. Here's a new rule. In, in our basement, we have these two, like, uh, storage shelving things filled with toys, and all these toys that people have graciously given to us, and they love playing with for two minutes each. <laughs> And I said, all right, here is the bottom row of these two. You may play with whatever you want on the bottom row, but once you get to the second row up, you may not play with those toys unless mommy or daddy gives you permission to take the toys off. I was like, you, do you understand this? They're like, oh, yeah, we understand. I said, okay, I'm going to repeat this one more time because <laughs> I, I don't want to come down here and see tornado number three hit. So they know the rules. Now, when we send them downstairs, I try to remind them, remember, whatever you take out, you're going to have to put away. And remember that, you know, there's just those, those toys on the bottom shelf. Imagine them, they're going down there, they're playing with their toys, they're having a great old time, living with abandon, destroying everything they possibly can. And, and by that, they're just playing. That's all they're doing. Playing with all the toys that they can. In the back of their minds, they probably know Daddy might come down here and see the toys that I have or see that I took the toys I'm not supposed to take unless we have permission to do that. They have, they have in the back of their mind, he may come back and he may find that we did something we shouldn't have. It's kind of in some ways what Peter's saying here. Jesus is going to come back and you must be found by him in peace. What does he mean by in peace? Well, there's several options, and he could mean all of these in a sense. He could be saying, be found by him in peace with God. That, you, that when Jesus comes, you have an account with God where you stand before him one day and God is your friend. You as an individual are no longer at war with God, but God is your friend. And you are at peace with God. So that when Jesus Christ comes, he sees you and he says, you once were an enemy of my father, alienated in your minds by wicked works but has now been reconciled by the blood of Jesus. So that when Jesus comes back, you might be found at peace with God by him. But he could also be talking about peace with other people. He's writing to believers after all. And do we not know that in our sinfulness, our inclinations when we're gathered with other people, is to war and fight. Is it not? Why else would James write in James 4, From whence come wars and fighting among yourselves? Come they not even among your lusts that war in your members against each other? Fighting and strife are not 
what God intended for his people. God created us in the beginning in Genesis to have peace with him and peace with each other. And when Jesus comes, how distraught would he be to see his bride not at peace with each other? The peace with each other that we have is something the world can only hope to have. It mystifies me that somehow we as human beings think one of the greatest ideas we could possibly do was to connect all 8 billion people on the earth. Have you ever wondered that? Like, there's somehow a great, there's this great plan that if we can all be connected on social media or whatever the case may be, that it's going to be great. We're going to solve all the world's problems. I don't know about you, but it seems like the problems have gotten worse. Who thought that connecting 8 billion depraved human beings would bring peace? It doesn't. Because there's nothing that sinful, depraved human minds have that could bring peace. Because our hearts and minds are ultimately filled, died with the blackness of sin and pride. And as Christians, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, which means now, guess what? We don't have to be slaves to that sin, but we're still going to fight it. So when we gather together as however many people in each congregation all around the world, you're, you're still gathering together people who still have elements and remnants of sin within them. So there will be times when there isn't peace. But Peter perhaps could be telling pe- his people here that he's writing to, you need to be found by Jesus being at peace with God and peace with each other as Christians. Because as Christians, we have something in common. But he could be saying, be at peace with the world at large. What does Paul say? Pray for, I would that you would pray for all men. Why? So that you can live a quiet and peaceable life. I don't want to fight with the world, but there are some things we have to stand for. We have to be steadfast in. When people want to attack the Christian teachings and the Christian faith, we must stand with all of our might for it. And in the words of Paul, having done all to stand. But that doesn't mean we just go looking for a fight. That we do everything we can to live quiet and peaceable lives. The Christians in the early 250s began to be destroyed methodically by Diocletian and other emperors who were diametrically opposed to the gospel and to the teachings of Christianity. And for over 50 years, that was something that the Christians endured with intensity. Until one day, there was an emperor who in the providence of God said, no more. In 311 AD, he said, no more. You may not just go and assault Christians anymore. And then a couple years later, he, he said, this is enough. No more attacking Christians. And then less than 50 years later, Christianity became the official religion. Because Christians simply wanted to be at peace with the world. We just want to live quiet and peaceable lives, being faithful as we can while Jesus comes. Regardless, Peter says, 
We're looking for the day when Jesus fulfills his promise. So what should you do? You need to be diligent in your walk before God, with other believers, and before the world who's watching. The world is watching us. They're seeing how we resolve things. They're seeing how we deal with the challenges of life. They're seeing how our responses are when things don't go the way we want them to go. They're seeing our responses when we are poor, when we don't have all the world's blessings that so many people are literally living their lives for. And if they see us at peace with God and peace with each other and living quiet and peaceable lives with the world, I think God uses that to adorn the gospel so that they say, what do they have? I want that too. So Peter says, you must be diligent in your walk. The second thing he says is you must consider Christ's patience. In verse 15, he says, an account, consider the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Jesus is patient. I am not patient. You are probably not patient either. I would probably say I'm one of the most impatient people in the world. If a, if a web page takes more than a, a 0.6 seconds to open, it drives me bonkers. If you're, if you're streaming a movie and that little dreaded circle where it's loading shows up, it drives me insane. When you order something on Amazon, how many of you have Prime because you can't wait a week? You can barely wait 48 hours. We're not patient people. But our Lord is. He's very patient. With the Lord... A thousand years is like one day. And a day is like a thousand years. But one day when the perfect timing comes, that day when Jesus comes, it's going to be like a thief in the night. You have no idea it's coming. And when it comes, it will be the perfect time. And Christ in his patience is being patient and long-suffering towards his children, towards us as Christians, but he's being so infant, so, so greatly patient with the unbelieving world. He's tasked us with the responsibility to give them a message to believe. Are you proclaiming it? Paul says, I literally, my, my testimony is that my life might be a testimony of the patience of God. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 1. My life is a testimony of the patience of God. Some of you may have gotten saved later in life. Your life testimony is a testimony of the patience of God. And some of you might be like me. You got saved when you were about eight years old, and that still is the patience of God because even six, five, four, three-year-old Rodney was a sinner destined for the judgment of God. And if God had killed Rodney at five years old and let him die and stand before his bar, God would be perfectly just to condemn me because I have violated his holy law. But he displayed his patience and brought me to faith when I was eight years old. The patience of Jesus is what saved you. Should we not proclaim the message to those people that he's being patient with right now? Consider Christ's patience. When you recognize that your walk, you must be diligent in it. When you recognize and consider Christ's patience, it makes you want to be steadfast in Christ. Third, he says, beware of the dangers. Beware of the dangers. He mentions in verse 16 when he says, look, we're talking about the patience of Christ. These are the kinds of things our brother Apostle Paul was saying. First Timothy 1, 
He's talking about the patience of Jesus. And Peter, who had been confronted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, he says the things that, that Paul says, sometimes they're hard to understand. But there are people who are willfully ignorant, he says in verse 16. They're unlearned. This isn't to say that they're ignorant people like they're backwoods hicks who'd have no education. He's saying these people are literally not caring to hear the truth that we have been given to proclaim by our Lord. They're intentionally and willfully ignorant. And he says there they're unstable and they rest, it says in the King James. They're wrestling or they're twisting, your translation might say. They're twisting the truths we're giving. And that's what the world is doing. Even now, there are people who claim to be Christians who are taking the word of God and saying, well, he didn't really mean that. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged because they weren't hospitable. It had nothing to do with their homosexuality. The homosexuals that were being destroyed and and told to be destroyed in the law of, of the Old Testament were only said that because they weren't having a monogamous relationship. It wasn't a loving relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. They're taking the truths of God's word and twisting them. And so Peter says, beware of those dangers. There are false teachers who are trying to deceive you. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jesus said, there are people, but you'll know by their fruits, there are people who are wolves wearing sheep's clothing, trying to bite and devour and destroy the sheep. This is the work of Satan who himself can transform himself into an angel of light. We have to be discerning. This is a call for discernment. Beware of the dangers You cannot just imbibe everything that every person who claims to be a Christian says. You can't. And as a a pastor, and there there are Bible professors at various colleges, and there are pastors and theologians much smarter and greater than me, whose life's goal is to protect and preserve the true teachings of Scripture. Because there are people who claim to be Christians, but they're not. And just because they claim they are, you cannot Assume they are. You must be discerning is what Peter's saying. And I'm not saying go around and question every person's salvation in this room or anybody who claims to be a Christian, but I am saying, Peter is saying, be aware. There are people who claim they are, but they're not. And you have to be so diligent and discerning because not only is there a danger of false teaching, but there's a danger of you for failing If you listen to the false teachings of the world who wants to twist the scriptures and you want to say, well, they must be right. Science is updated. We have more modern morals, things like that. We understand that we have to read the Bible through the lens of what we know now. Peter is saying, be careful because not only will those false teachers twist the scriptures, but they will cause your faith to fail. I think one of the hardest things for me as a young man, has been to see people that I either grew up with or were were in youth group who aren't in the faith anymore. It's such a a terrible feeling. I, I don't even know how to say it. And some of you are parents, and you have heartaches on your heart because you have children you've raised to love Christ, and where are they now? They're failing. 
It's so hard to see. There's a, the, John, the apostle, says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. All of his spiritual children, every one of them that he, that he saw growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, he was just rejoicing in. But imagine the hurt and the pain and heartache he felt at the ones who didn't make it. Anytime I watch like some kind of nature channel, I, I love animals, creatures, things like that. Anytime you watch any kind of show that has to do with animals, and particularly when it has to do with animals and they're trying to take care of their young, one of the hardest things to watch is when that mom animal is trying to care for her little ones and then somehow some other predator gets in and swoops in and takes it away. Or the other one is sickly and just not healthy and ends up dying. And, and they show it. You know, they, they show you the reality. Nature just can be very harsh in a sin-cursed, fallen world. But even, even my natural nurturing tendency with animals to see that is just so hard to watch. Imagine how much greater it is, the pain, to see somebody whose faith fails because they were not steadfast. They were not diligent in their walk. They didn't consider the patience of Christ and they weren't being discerning. They were not being aware of the dangers. The teenagers in this room, you guys, you guys are the next generation of Christians. You're going to be the next deacons and elders and missionaries and moms and dads. The greatest thing that you have to be aware of is that you need to be discerning because you have access to so much knowledge right now, but you don't know how much of it is real or true. You have to be discerning and careful because there are false teachers. And if you're not careful, there's a very real danger that your faith may fail. And the end for them is destruction. So verse 17, he says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye, being led away with the error of the wicked, fail from your own steadfastness. And you say, well, Rod, how do I, how do I avoid that? How do I avoid failing? I don't want to fail. The reality is, is on your own, you can't avoid it. If you are on your own, you will fail because you don't have the strength I have 20-pound dumbbell weights in our basement. And Benjamin and Daniel were down there one time, and I was, I was lifting them up, and I don't, it's not impressive. 20 pounds isn't very much. <laughs> That's about as much as I can handle. But Benjamin was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. So I said, all right, go ahead. And he's lifting. He's trying his hardest to lift 20-pound you know, dumbbells, and, and, and he can't do it. So that's about as much as I can do, but... I want to impress my son, so <laughs> lift it up and just start doing it. And then I helped him do it. In his own strength, Benjamin could not lift up 20 pounds. But with his hand there and my hand around it, I was able to lift it up with him and help him hang on to it. Peter says the exact same thing in 1 Peter 1 in one of my favorite passages because he knows the question of what it means to fail. He denied Christ three times. His faith did fail, even though he was confident he'd be fine. Though all forsake you, though all deny you, yet I won't. Jesus says, 
The rooster isn't going to crow three times before you've failed me three times. And he saw the betrayal and the the, 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 the betrayal in the eyes of Jesus that he felt, Peter went and wept bitterly. So he's talking to other Christians who may be wondering, how do I know if I'm going to stay in the faith? How do I know if I'll be steadfast? And here's what he writes to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what... What did he, he make us alive to enjoy? In verse 4, he made us alive to enjoy an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And then in verse 5, Peter pens these words probably with tears in his eyes as he thinks about what he himself had done to his Lord who are kept by the power of God through faith. Unto salvation. Your faith will not fail, not because you clung onto it so tightly yourself, even though you should, with all of your might, fight tooth and nail the assaults of Satan using the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. But ultimately, Peter says, Your faith will not fail because Jesus is protecting it. And nothing gets by him. So the warning he gives there in Second Peter is really a call to them not to try to be better. It's a call to them to cling to Christ. And that's how he closes his letter. He says the four ways we must be steadfast is to be diligent in our walk. Consider Christ's patience be aware of the dangers, and then, verse 18, grow in grace. Grow in Christ, he says. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Moment by moment, day by day, don't just stay where you are. Don't be satisfied with where you're at today, September 10th, 2023. Take the next spiritual step to grow in grace. The grace that you have seen and experienced through the faith that you placed in Jesus. Grow in it. Not grow in being better and doing the right thing, though you should. But grow in the grace and, he says, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Don't you want to know Jesus better? Don't, when you have a friendship or when you have a marriage, when you have any relationship, don't you want to know the person better? How do you know a person better? You know a person better by spending time with them, learning everything about them, what they like, what they don't like, what's interesting to them. How do we grow and know Christ? When we read the word that tells us about him. So grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Four ways to be steadfast in our faith as Christians. Our Father and our God, our joy is to know that you will protect our faith from the onslaughts of Satan, from the scoffers in the world who want to mock Christianity and the truth claims in it. I thank you that you will not leave us alone. You will strengthen us. 
Lord, I beg of you that if there's anyone in this room who has not yet placed their faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, that your spirit would work in their mind and in their heart to love and desire Jesus above all else. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your patience that you have shown to us as sinners. And help us to walk diligently. Help us to remember the salvation we've had because of the patience of Jesus. Help us to be discerning in a world filled with lies. And most importantly, Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. Amen.